Hello everyone, Iceman here. We're going to start the show off a little bit differently this week, so bear with me. Two years ago, about this time, my mom, Patricia Sullivan, passed away from complications of brain cancer. I would be lying to you if I said that I didn't think about her just about every single day since she passed away. I think about her, I think about us, think about the time that we spent, and honestly, the time that we lost. Grief is kind of a weird thing. It's not linear. It's very much like a roller coaster. You kind of go up and down with it. And it's not really something that you can put into words unless you've been through that kind of loss. What I can tell you is that podcasting, and by extension this show, has been something that has helped me through that grief. So for that, I thank you. Human relationships are really interesting. I think we fully expect other people to be perfect when it comes to our relationships, especially the people that we are the closest to. Over the course of time, we inevitably have little squabbles with people that we're very, very close with, that we love dearly. Most of the time, those are over very petty things. Who burnt the roast? Who owes me money? Who said something or looked at me in a way that makes me feel not that great? And I've noticed that a lot of the times, these petty disagreements end up causing major fractures in relationships. I'm not perfect by any means. My mom and I had our own trials and tribulations that led to a five-year estrangement. And when I said earlier, talking about time that we lost, we lost a lot of time. When we're young, time is a commodity that I think we feel is bountiful. It's something that we're never going to run out of. The invincibility of being young is something you only experience once. As we get older, though, I think the stark reality of just how finite time is in terms of a commodity starts to hit us in the face. Life begins to take things away from us instead of giving them to us. But honestly, not all hope is lost. There is always room for a second chance and there is always a place to restart and rekindle a relationship. So what do I ask of you today? At some point during this episode, I ask that you stop the episode and I ask that you think about a relationship or a person that maybe you have a fractured relationship with that you could use a little bit of TLC with. Pick up the phone, call them, text them. It's not gonna happen overnight, but it could start the process. When we die, the material things that we have, like our money and our possessions, are not gonna come with us. What's also not gonna come with us are the squabbles that we had and the disagreements and the grudges that we hold. What will come with us and what will stay with the survivors are those memories. And so if you have the chance to rekindle a fractured relationship, do it. You're never going to regret it. And to mom, I miss you dearly, and I'm happy that you are in a better place today. And I hope and pray that you're proud of me. This is Iceman and Coach. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Iceman and Coach. This is the Iceman, Matt Freights. That is the coach, Brad Powell. Brad, welcome to the show, buddy. It's been a couple of weeks. How you doing? Iceman, doing great. It has been a couple of weeks, and I've got to tell you, man, that was beautiful, and I couldn't have said it better myself. I know that for a fact. Uh, you're right. It is absolutely important to uh, value those relationships, even if they have kind of gotten away from us uh, through the day-to-day the -day grind of life. 
Um, it kind of reminds me, I've been listening to an audiobook recently called The Subtle Art of Unfucking Yourself, or excuse me, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, or am I correction? And um, it talks a lot about how life is full of, life is always going to be full of problems and pain and struggle. Um, just the difference is, is as different things in your life improve, you just have better problems. You know, I say that, you know, Warren Buffett has money problems. They're just different than, you know, someone like you or I that would have money problems. So it, it just, you know, it kind of goes into detail about how to not let, uh, how we have choice, right, of, over the things that we let bother us. You mentioned, you know, burnt pot roast and things of that sort. And, and it's so true. I think we all let things on the, you know, day-to-day -day things really get under our skin. I know I'm terrible about it. I've really been trying to work on it on it just recently in the last few days. It's been something I've tried to put some effort into is just choosing to not let different things bother me like on a really serious level. So far, so good. But we're talking like 48 hours. <laughs> so talk to me in a few days. Yeah, it takes time to sort of recalibrate who you are and recalibrate your life. And just to peel back the curtain a little bit for the listeners, because I don't know how much I've gone into it on this show. She passed away before Iceman and Coach was officially a thing. I hadn't even decided what we were going to do with the sports show at that point. And it's it's just not something that I've gone into detail with here. But my mom and I lost a lot of time together. And because of mistakes that I made, just as many as she made, you know, too. And I think sometimes we get into this place when these fractures happen and we have these disagreements that we don't actually do any introspection and think about that, think about what we did. I think it's always a blame game of what did they do when we all know that it's like my version, your version, and the truth is somewhere in between. And now that she is gone, I realize that much more that those petty disagreements and squabbles and stuff are just so meaningless and I've been able to sort of put this mask on and be able to look at it and look at how other people interact with each other and realize that there's so many more things that are important in life. And you know, I think about some of my relatives who have current grudges with people that they haven't spoken with siblings in 10 years. And I can understand that if there are certain lines that are crossed, but this is over money. And it's like money is really not that important. What's important is that you try and rekindle a relationship with your only sibling before you or they pass away. And it's like, you can't get through to some people. And I just refuse to live that way. But I will tell you this, that I was very, very fortunate to have a very close moment with my mom before she passed away. I went to go visit her. I didn't know she was only gonna last a week, but the theory was is that she was waiting for me to come visit so she could do whatever she needed to do. You know how they talk about that, how people are waiting for something, they were like waiting to sort of move on. And it was in that moment that we had come to actual peace and reconciliation. And I'm looking at her sitting in this bed. It's like this woman's dying. And now is the time when we have reconciliation. But through that, though, I realized how powerful love is and that being vulnerable through love, even though you know it's going to hurt you in the end, because you're going to lose people as you get older, it's just going to happen. But that vulnerability and that love, even carrying it on afterward, after they're gone, it's so powerful. And I think that we have the ability now to pick up the phone so much easier than we could and call or text that one person. That's why I say, take the time during this episode, pause it, go do it. And it's not gonna be easy. It may not be fun at first, but hopefully it will be worth it because you'll have at least gotten that one relationship back. So a little bit into what happened back in that day a couple of years ago. 
No, and it's great that, uh, you know, as, as much as you wish you would have gotten more time, it's great that you got that opportunity. Um, you would probably feel much differently about the situation right now if you hadn't had that moment with your mom and been able to sort of mend those fences um, there at the end. And I know that, you know, you and I have spoken offline in more detail about your relationship with your mother. And I know how, um, how much you care about her and that it was a big loss for you. And I think it's great that you're sharing, you know, your perspective on it because it's something a lot of people need to hear because I feel like now more than ever, people, people, it seems like people tend to carry those things with them longer uh, and maybe permanently in some cases. And I'm not sure if, if it's just the evolution of our emotions uh, as humans over time if we're less willing to, if we just don't see the big picture, you know, because we just live in this immediate right in front of our face world and we're incapable maybe of realizing the future um, and our own mortality and the mortality of those around us sometimes. So uh, I think that's a good, healthy reminder for sure. And um, no, and it's, I just, I'm here for it, man. I, you know, I'm right here for you. I care about you. And no, I think it's it's a great moment. I'm glad you're able to share it and, you know, remember your mom, especially you know, here we are two years later and uh, to be able to kind of make her memory part of uh, part of the show. You know, we're at about a year later this show and you know, I didn't know you at that time. And so, no, it's just nice to have a piece of her be a, be a part of all this. Just so you know, we are recording on August 22nd. August 24th was the first episode we ever did together. And that anniversary is here. And I think about that a lot, but I, I said it in the monologue opening and podcasting was something that has been sort of like living a dream for me. Maybe it sounds silly to you if you're watching or listening, but it's true. And being able to do this from the comfort of my own home, to be able to forge a relationship with you, Brad, and any of the listeners or any of the viewers, even the people that hate us, I appreciate that you come here and listen, even if you're here because you want to take a victory lap because I said the Falcons were going to be crappy this year, you're here. And it means a lot to me that people do this because no matter what happened, right, with my mom, she was my biggest fan and she was always there. And I said this the other day when I was recording Fire Footwear about how even when with your kids, you're so frustrated with them and you know how it is, right? You get so frustrated. But when your kid comes calling or your kid is going to do something, you're there for them. You're 100% there, even if they are so annoying at that moment. And my mom was there for all of the milestones. And I think had she been alive right now, she would have been along for this ride. She would have watched. She's not even a big sports person or wasn't a big sports person, but she would have watched and she would have shared and she would have told everybody about this. And so this right here is cathartic for me. Maybe not every episode because I don't think about her every second of every day, but sometimes it is good and it does help me through the process because there are times in which I think about her a lot more than I do other times around my birthday, around the holidays, things like that. So having this as an escape and the listeners and viewers are part of that experience. And I say this all the time, but if you're here watching or listening to this, it's because you enjoy the humanity that we share. If you want just straight up sports opinions and you want characters, this is not the show for you. You're going to get the real us in a mixture with all the other stuff. And that's what makes this show unique. And that's the brand of sports content that we're going to put on 100% no matter what. So I couldn't go the anniversary of this and not say something on the show. 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's we're real fathers, real sons, real sports fans, uh, real husbands, just talking about life. And I mean, obviously through the lens of sports in most cases, but no, I enjoy it. I couldn't do this if it were any other way. I'm just not the type of person that, I don't know, I can't fake it, I guess. You're just going to get pretty much my my honest opinion about things. And I think that's how I wish more people were that way, honestly. Me too. So let's get into the meat of the episode. We've got a lot to ta- we've got a lot to talk about this week. By the way, I want to celebrate because football is here. We're back, baby. Sports is back, even though it's been on all summer long. But football is here. But I want to talk about a story that kind of relates to family, and it came out last week when we took a little bit of a break. By the way, if you missed us last week, hopefully you caught all of the NFL previews that me and my brother-in-law Mike did on reading the defense. We went through every single division. And we posted each of those on the YouTube page. So definitely check that out. And if you're listening, I will get that out eventually. But maybe head on over to YouTube and check it out because it was awesome. And if you have any opinions on that, of course, the number is always to call or text 703-718-6314. But we've been talking about family. And last week, the Michael Orr story came up. And I think if you have been paying attention at all, you know who you know what that name is and you know that there was a movie made about this guy called The Blind Side. And we're not here to review the movie, but essentially Michael Orr, through his representatives, came out and said that the family, I believe it's the Tui family, conned him essentially into signing over a conservatorship and that they did not give him what he felt was the money he was owed based on the fact that the movie was made by him or made about him and all of these things. And there has been just basically legal statements after legal statements. And I know when I look at this, many people are either one camp or the other. It's either, well, they screwed him or he's just a mooch who ran out of money and he's trying to get it. And my official opinion on this is that both sides are full of shit. Yeah, the truth usually lies somewhere in between. Um, I caught a little bit of an interview that the, the kid from the movie, SJ or whatever, right? Now he's a grown man, but he actually did an interview with Barstool uh, where he they, he kind of talked about his perspective on the situation. I mean, obviously, there's certain things he couldn't say for you know legal reasons, but you know he was saying in that he's like you know hey he's like I I just hope I hope Mike gets whatever he is he feels he's entitled to you know what I mean like and what else is he gonna say I, really I guess but I don't know like I have a lot of questions and I'm sure this information's out there if I were to look into it at all as far as this conservatorship you're talking about was this. Was this signed well before there was ever any like inkling of like what he was going to become and uh, that there was going to be a movie or whatever else? And I would just like to know sort of the timeline, because at least the way that I portray or my perception of this family is that they don't necessarily they don't strike me as the type of family that like needs a truckload of cash from some situation like this. Now, obviously, that's a very distant perception. I don't know the ins and outs of their lifestyle but they're portrayed that way in the movie that they're very that they're well off and just from everything i've seen of reality which is very little uh that's my first impression and so not that that could prevent someone from being greedy it certainly can't and then obviously you know it again totally basing a lot of this off what you see in the movie he them doing what they did for him sort of laid the groundwork and gave him a foundation to be successful and get these opportunities, you know, to go play college football. And not, you, I know you cannot guarantee that wouldn't have happened otherwise. No, but you know, he's had his opportunity. He's made his money. I know that he's gotten money from the movie. Now to what extent, I'm not sure to what extent is, 
is has he gotten money versus the family gotten money? I'm, I think that's kind of what the bulk of this is about. I don't know. I'm kind of in the middle, man. Like, honestly, I don't give a shit the way it shakes out. <laughs> Truthfully, it's I'm sure somewhere along really probably who took advantage of people the most is probably the freaking uh, the studio. You know, they're the ones that probably raked in the most cash out of the deal. And if there's anyone they should be going after for money, maybe it should be the studio. The thing that strikes me about this is and why I say both sides is because I think that in all situations like this, there is some middle ground and it's usually some version of the truth. All I know is that the movie was a little bit too corny for my taste. Like, I think that the story is compelling. We all love an underdog story here at Iceman and Coach, and I think we love that in this country in general. And again, not to bring race into it, but it did obviously show here comes this rich white family to help this, what they portrayed a very non-intelligent or seemingly non-intelligent black dude, right? And so I can understand why there are people triggered by the movie and then why this story comes out and how what we have heard in the news through these legal statements is triggering for people. So like I can see all of that. I can also see people being triggered by, well, he got a bunch of money and he played in the NFL. He obviously benefited a ton from his relationship with them and all these other things. I guess what sucks is that you'd like to think that any parent worth a damn wouldn't do something like this to their kid even a kid that they adopted. And I just, we don't know. We don't know enough to have a real informed opinion, but this goes back to what I talked about and people get all butthurt over money. And I think there is a line though, like obviously if somebody owed me what I felt like $15 million, you know, maybe I might be thinking that they need to pay up, but it just makes me sad because he obviously feels a certain way that this family that he thought he could trust, he can't trust or he couldn't trust in the end. And that does make me a little bit sad because that just shows you where society is. And as you pointed out, like they seem to be a well-to-do family. Did they really need this kind of publicity? Is it Was it really about anything genuine? And now you look at the movie and think, wow, how many liberties did they take with that movie? And maybe because we didn't like it. I mean, we're people who like sap. Don't, don't get me wrong, right? And so for us to be like, it's a little too over the top for us, maybe you're right. Maybe the movie theaters or the, the movie companies and everything, they took full advantage of the story and basically almost exploited it to the point that how much of it is actually true. And I hate thinking that way because I'm already cynical enough. I don't need more in my life. No, you're right, though. And I think a lot of movies, uh, movies, documentary, not documentaries, movies, TV shows, whatever, that are based off of real life stories, they, they do take liberties. And to some extent, you have to fudge some things for the sake of time. You know, you can't, we're talking about a two and a half hour movie and uh, something that happened over the course of 10 years. Of course, there's going to be a lot of shit that's left out and glossed over. But yeah, I, I just, it just seems the timing is kind of strange. Like why now? Like, are you, you, you all of a sudden think that you've gotten screwed over in some way, shape or form. And, and I don't know if it's like, you, if maybe he's come upon tough financial times and he's trying to figure something out. Maybe some people have gotten in his ear and said, Hey man, like, I think those people were taking advantage of you. And hell, maybe they were. I don't know. And if they were, shame on them, right? Uh, like, you know, the movie paints them in a pretty positive light, I would say. And maybe people take exception with that. and They feel like some of the depictions are unfair. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I don't know why it's news. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't feel like it's necessarily newsworthy. But I think that, you know, we're, we're kind of not really into football season yet. So we need something to talk about. And 
and I don't mean us, but I just mean in the mainstream news or whatever. Well, it's so newsworthy that I accidentally turned my light off. So that's always good. <laughs> Turn the lights off on Michael Orr. But you said something in there and that's going to transition us to the next topic. You talked about made for TV movies or stories or whatever. Let's talk about Hard Knocks. So I have to say, I have never actually seen an episode of Hard Knocks ever. I'm making that that statement now so that my it's ignorance okay, can be put on full display whenever the haters come after us. But you got into my ear on some topics, which by the way, for everybody, that doesn't happen too often. So I'm really excited to talk about something you actually want to talk about instead of me asking for your opinion on things. But you brought up this fight that happened on Hard Knocks. And for everybody who doesn't know, the New York football Jets with Aaron Rodgers are on Hard Knocks this year. So I assume they're going to play up a lot of this stuff. But apparently there was a fight in camp. And from what I understand, I think it was Robert Sala who was very much behind this, or was it another coach? No, it was Robert Sala for sure. Like the clip I saw, an assistant coach made some sort of comment to him, and I'm going to screw it up, but something like this, it doesn't have to be a sideline clearing ordeal every time. Because like there was a scuffle happening, and they're like in the middle of it, and it's kind of like winding down, and that the assistant's like, it doesn't have to be a sideline clearing deal every time. And he goes, yes, it does. Sure, kind of guy, and and then segues right in. I think in the same video, goes right into um, the Colorado, uh, the University of Colorado situation, where um, Coach Prime is letting some guys have it because there's a scuffle at practice that takes place, and there's some dudes that are walking away from it or just standing back, and he loses his mind. He's like, "One of us fight, we all fight." You know what I mean? Like you walk away, like you might as well just keep walking to the locker room. And there's it, there's been some mixed opinions, obviously, on it. One thing I like about it is that I feel like we're seeing, you know, football gets a lot of criticism these days for getting soft, I think. I, I like that mentality, man. I like the mentality of getting a little more barbaric, I guess, with this, but that it is, man. Like, a football game is freaking violent. And if you did, you know, I had a coach that would always say in practice, like, you get to do things out here that if you walked out of here after practice and did it to somebody down at McDonald's, you'd get arrested. And it's absolutely true. And it's it's combat in a way. And that with all due respect to real combat, I'm not trying to you know make light of that at all, but it is physical battle, man on man, uh, battle of wills, all those cliches. And it takes a certain mentality. And I think that you have to do things as a coach to to grow and nurture that mentality within your program. I have no problem with it. Obviously, you can't let things get out of control. You don't want people getting hurt, but I, I'm totally behind the mindset, 100%. So I think in both of these instances, they're trying to sell something. And both of these have been underperforming programs slash organizations for quite a while, actually. And if you really think about it, they're both trying to sell what? They're trying to sell hope and hype and a culture change. And I think for Coach Prime specifically, this is way in his wheelhouse in terms of the way that he wants to be portrayed, the way that he wants his organization to be portrayed and all of that kind of thing. And it doesn't surprise me that this kind of thing gets out there because right now, I said this before when he was announced as the head coach, but this is about as good as it's going to get for Colorado until the football actually starts and we see what the real results are doesn't mean that he's going to be a failure. It just means that right now they're zero and zero and they have people convinced because of videos like this that they could win the damn national title. And we know that that's not even close. 
But from a team perspective, you need to have some semblance of a culture. And I think that Deion Sanders coming in there and saying those things is trying to get away from what obviously didn't work before. Let's not forget, Colorado was 1-11 last year. Whatever it is that they did last year didn't work. So you got to try something different. And in camp, when you have these disagreements, you all should be unified. And this is the time to do it. So I, I agree with you in that regard. With the Jets, Robert Sala is not the guy they're selling. It's obviously Aaron Rodgers. But I think that through hard knocks, they're able to tell a story. Whereas in Colorado, they're taking a clip of something real that happened and they're putting it out there and people are sort of making a narrative. On Hard Knocks, they have producers and stuff who say like, let's let's show this and it's going to do this because the Jets are obviously behind what's going on. So they want to sell Robert Sala as this badass because he has been kind of panned in New York. Cleve will tell you that. He called him Max Salad one time, couldn't even remember his name on a podcast because that's how he felt about him at the time. Robert Sala now is kind of looking to get rejuvenated in terms of his perception. And how do you do that? Comments like that. Yes, it should always be a sideline scuffle. If they win, it's great. If they don't win, that's when this becomes problematic. So this is the time to do it, though. Both teams are 0-0. The future is bright. We'll talk to uh, everybody in November and see how this is going. Sure. And to play the other side of it, right, people that may criticize it, they may say, well, if you're out there trying to coach up toughness, and all that stuff, and that maybe that's a sign that you're not very talented. And so you're taking the approach of, well, if we're not going to be able to outplay people and outskill people, then we're going to out-tough them, right? And, uh, but at that level, it doesn't really apply. I mean, maybe Colorado's case, you could make that argument. Uh, at the NFL, everybody's good. The margins are from good to great to, you know, out of this world are so small you know, the Colorado to everyone else, you know, they're definitely probably embracing that underdog narrative narrative a little bit, I would imagine. You know, so I, I it is. It's culture building. You're absolutely right. I've always been one of those people like, you know, gonna be the toughest team on the field and this and that. And again, maybe maybe that is just something people I coach a lot of bad football teams, man. So maybe that's something that you just fall back on when, you know, you're like, well, we gotta be good at something. So let's be good at being tough. <laughs> Uh, you know, if we're going to lose, they're at least going to know they were in a battle and that shit like that. You know, So I don't know. I could see both sides. But for the most part, I just told you, like, I'm all about that shit. So uh, sign me up for it. I love to see it. Thing is, I don't even see this as toughness because I think faux toughness is when Scott Frost last year talked about how his players should be puking two times in practice. And that's how you know that they're tough enough for the season. Or your man, Dan Campbell, talking about biting kneecaps. That's that faux toughness stuff. I think this is more in the line of team unity. Listen, I'm going to tell you a story. When I was a kid, the Patriots used to have their practices at Bryant College, which is, I believe, Bryant University now, but obviously way different. This was before they were winning Super Bowls, but this is when Bill Parcells was the coach, the big tuna, all that good stuff. And my dad would take me to at least one day of training camp every year because it was free and you could go. And I remember one time there was a fight and curse words were being thrown out there. Bill Parcells was obviously in the middle of that because that guy did not have earmuffs or anything like that. And I remember asking my dad, like, why are they fighting? And he basically was just like, this is how you build a football team in the offseason. And sometimes those fights are what toughen the team up and make them unified. It's not about I'm tougher than you or this is a tough football team. That's not the way I see it. When you say, like, when one of us fights, we all fight, 
That actually applies to when you're on the field, because if one person gives up during a big game, then you might as well have everybody give up. And so I think of it that way. I know that there's going to be critics that are going to say like exactly what you just said from a devil's advocate perspective, but I don't think that they're seeing it the right way. I think that they're trying to find some type of criticism to be had when this is just the way that these coaches, first of all, Deion Sanders wants you to believe a certain thing about Colorado and you can't believe anything you see on Hard Knocks because it's a television program. It's not necessarily the reality of what's going on. For all you know, as somebody who does the video editing for the show, they could have taken that quote from something completely meaningless and put it on that. And you think that that's what he said directly afterward. You don't know. So don't always believe what you see and don't always try to find criticism in between the lines because you're just going to be, you're going to find yourself going crazy. So a couple things. One is for all the production talent that I'm sure HBO has and puts behind Hard Knocks, they still couldn't manage to make Hugh Jackson look like a good football coach uh, in Cleveland when they were on Hard Knocks. And uh, and then also, you, I would like to see you tell Dan Campbell to his face that you think he's faux tough. I'm not saying uh, he's faux tough, but when you say things that. like that, when you say things like we're going to come in here and bite kneecaps, Remember, he said that before that they stupid. even... stupid. That was really stupid. But he I said agree. that before they even played a down. And so that's something that losing teams say when they change over coaches. Now, what we've seen from Dan Campbell is there's a lot of hype on the Lions this year, and we'll see what happens, right? So he's practicing what he's preaching, and his team is buying into it. So there is something to be said about that. But when he said it the first time, you're like, who are you to say that? What does that even mean? And he's like, we're going to drink lion piss and all that stuff. That's just conjecture. It doesn't mean anything. I think in these two cases, though, because of where these two teams want to be and where they've historically been the last 20 years or so, these are moments that could be considered seminal moments. But I think that for Colorado's sake, and we're going to get into this on Friday, they're going to struggle because I think that they don't have nearly the kind of talent that the other schools in their division have. But the Jets are, are in win-now mode. So they're just trying to sell this to the fan base and really, I guess the NFL as a whole, because it's clear to me that the NFL sees them as a team to watch because they gave them hard knocks. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, there's, I don't know if you heard the story, there's uh, certain parameters in place in hard knocks. Like you couldn't have made, I think it's like you couldn't have, maybe you couldn't have made the playoffs in the prior year or whatever. So they want to find a team that's like rebuilding. They're not going to go fuck with like the good teams. <laughs> um I think if you've been on it in a certain period of time, you can't be on it. So there were only like four or five teams that were eligible. And I, I think if someone volunteers, they can be on it. Nobody volunteered. There were only like four or five teams that were eligible and none of them volunteered. And so the NFL got to choose and they chose the Jets for the, I mean, Aaron Rodgers, right? That's the main reason. Cause I think, I think they could have, I want to say that the Patriots were actually on the list of teams they could have chosen. Never happened. So that would, but they, but I'm saying like they, they wouldn't have any say over it. If the NFL said like this year, if the Patriots aren't very good, they'll be on the list next year. And I would love to see Bill Belichick on hard knocks, dude. Like love it. Did you see that he's a Swifty? He was talking about how we saw. Is he some, really? He saw some of the Taylor Swift concert. It was in Foxborough and apparently it was in like a monsoon. It was pouring rain and she was out there performing like as if it wasn't. And he said, you know what? She's pretty tough. And I'm like, Bill has a heart. Like, let's not all believe that Bill Belichick is the guy that he portrays with the media. Because here's the thing about hard knocks. I, this is what I believe. I think there are 
players that obviously love it. I think the younger players love it. Maybe the rookies like it because it's all part of the, I'm a professional now. The veterans hate that stuff. Like Aaron Rodgers, if you asked him, hey, how does it feel to be on Hard Knocks? He's like, I'd rather have them not here because I just want to play football. And they got cameras all over the place and you have to watch what you say. And the NFL is watching. That's the other thing about it too. Is like the NFL is looking over all this footage too. So you've kind of got to be careful. I almost wonder how many players implicate themselves in things when they're on Hard Knocks that the NFL is like, uh, what do we do with this? And so maybe that's why some of the good teams aren't on it because they don't want to get Patrick Mahomes in trouble for saying something, even if it's not going to make the actual cut. They're like, crap, what do we say? So I, I don't know. I, I feel like Hard Knocks is entertaining, but I think that for me it's missing. Like I, I'm actually more interested in the good teams than the bad teams. I know the bad teams come with drama like Hugh Jackson not knowing what he's doing. And you remember, I think, hearing about the fact that there was like one of the coaches on the team was trying to basically post uh, have a mutiny or something like that. Wasn't that a storyline with the Browns or something? There was something like that, yeah, for sure. Oh, that's fun. But when you know the team's going to suck, like it kind of takes it away for me. That. Just my personal opinion. Obviously, a lot of people watch it, but it's it's just not really something that entertains me. I just want to watch the damn football. No, I agree. I, I think a lot of people, they like seeing it. They want to see what happens behind the scenes. And you, yeah, that like you said, man, you went to a training camp, you saw a fight, your dad explained, hey, that's how teams are made. And like we're seeing that in Hard Knocks and we're seeing that in training or in fall camp in Colorado. And I think that, you know, one thing that I used always used to use with different teams is I'd always try to explain that I, I would compare sort of molding yourself as an athlete is uh, similar to maybe a car that's on the assembly line um, in a factory that, you know, there's a lot of really sort of violent, loud, dirty process processes that go into place to the, you know, putting together the frame of that car and the welding and the pounding and, um, all the stuff that happens along the way so that beautiful finished product can roll out the door at the end. And uh, that's kind of similar to practice versus a game, right? The behind the scenes, like what really goes into getting yourself ready to go out and perform uh, week to week or game to game. And and that's on display. You know, we talked offline a little bit, right? Today's the debut of Swamp Kings on Netflix, the special about the the Urban Meyer era uh, at the University of Florida. And right away, like, that's a big part of it. I won't spoil it for anybody um, and go into too much detail, but a big part of it is the mentality that he took, he went into Florida with uh, as far as, like, how he was going to go about the process of establishing a culture and training these guys. It's not pretty, man. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a violent process, and they kind of go into it in great detail to some degree. And, and people are pretty honest about it. You know, Tim Tebow's in it. You know, he has a couple, you know, he's mostly in support of it because of the uh, the results, but he definitely expresses some concerns he had along the way with some of the some of the things that were said and done. But I think that just at that time, that's what Urban Meyer believed that he had to do to put a competitive football team on the field that was going to compete at the level necessary to win SEC and national championships. I have not seen it yet, and I've not seen the Johnny Menzel thing, but what I have taken away from what people have told me so far, now I'm going to watch Swamp King. I'm not sure if I'm actually going to watch the Menzel one or not because he's somebody who I really can't stand, but I think I should as a podcaster in the sporting world. I probably should at least watch it, but the culture of winning is a real thing, and I think that the blinders are put on when the winning is taking place. As long as you go out there and do what you're supposed to do on the field, 
I honestly believe a lot of these programs don't care a lick about what happens as long as, again, you perform the way that you're supposed to perform. And I know a lot of coaches will talk a big game and talk about things, but I think at the end of it all, as much as I despise Urban Meyer as a human being, he's part of this culture in collegiate sports that is about winning first and foremost. And a lot of people like Dabo Swinney. I'm pretty sure that Dabo is probably not the guy that he portrays himself to be in the media, right? I think we can all say that. And I think nowadays, a lot of the coaches, there's very few of them that are genuine. Mike Leach was one of them. Rest in peace, Mike, right? He's not with us anymore. But Urban Meyer, what happened at Florida to get them to where they went to, the only thing that fascinates the hell out of me is that their virgin quarterback with Urban Meyer, who seems to be a guy who doesn't really have a lot of morals, and how that was successful with guys like Aaron Rodgers and Riley Cooper, right? It's like, wow. How did that team come together and gel together to win national titles with the dichotomy of personalities? That, to me, will be the fascinating part. Was it was Aaron Rodgers Tim Tebow's backup, or did you mean Aaron Hernandez? Oh, Aaron Hernandez. You know, there you <laughs> I go. They get you. <laughs> off to, we're off to the races. Yes, Aaron Hernandez. Tag, tag that one for the cacophony of gas baggery. Yes, right. Uh, come come Super Bowl time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I watched the Johnny Manziel one. Um, and interesting. It's very interesting. It's worth your time. Uh, you're not going to come away. It's not going to change your opinion of Johnny Manziel. I can tell you that much. Because he he owns exactly who he is. Uh, but I think he's got some regrets about the way he handled things as he's gotten older. Um, he realized, I think he realizes that, you know, the opportunity that he squandered. But, I mean, he's he he is who he is, man. And uh, what's fascinating between that and this one about Florida is just kind of the reminder of really what goes on at these places. You know, the you know we just see we see the games on TV, we see these college athletes, but like to remember that these are eighteen, nineteen to twenty two, twenty three year old men who are still living college lives, man. And uh, and then this fame that comes along with it if you are playing the game at a high level and then all the other little things that come along with the fame right the parties the women the money i i'm surprised that more people don't get themselves in trouble honestly because just i know when i was that age man i don't think i would have had the i don't think i've been johnny manzel style like <laughs> whatever but but like uh, just to, to have the discipline to like navigate that and kind of keep your eye on the prize per se, you know, like getting to the next level or whatever the case may be, has got to be challenging. And then, you know, to hear stories of these guys that are going out there, um, you know, there's a story, uh, I'll tell a little story from the Johnny Manziel one where Cliff Kingsbury was the offensive coordinator at Texas A&M at the time. And he talked about how like, you know, he like, he like, he had to go like drag him out of his apartment in the morning, you know, and he comes out to practice. He's hung over. He's like, dude, he's like, you better, you better show up tomorrow, man. Like, cause it was like a Friday before a big game. He's like, you better fucking show up and play. And he did, man. He went off and had like a crazy game. It's, and, uh, it kind of reminds me of like, you hear those Michael Jordan stories of him going out and playing like 36 holes of golf the day of a game. We got a game that night and drinking the whole time and gambling and then going out and dropping 60 points. It, it's just bizarre to me that people can do that. Um, and especially at such a high level. And it, it's, I don't know, it just kind of opens your eyes again to the whole behind the curtain side of college athletics, specifically in this case. 
It reminds me of Josh Gordon. You remember him? How basically, yeah. I think he had like a 1,600-yard season and he said he was drunk for every single game. Guys can do that. And the thing about the Manziel thing is he's a representation of what I can't stand, which is people who don't want to take responsibility. And as you pointed out, I think in the documentary, obviously you want to be somewhat apologetic for certain things. But another thing that triggers me is that people use this, this blanket of mental health to sort of go back in time and try to whitewash or erase everything that they did because like I wasn't mentally right, in which it could very well be true, but there are a lot of people who work through real mental health struggles just to even function on a daily basis. So when you see that, it sometimes is triggering, but I'm very excited to watch that actually now, knowing because you said you weren't gonna watch it because you couldn't stand Menzel. So if your opinion hasn't changed of him, that means I'm good to go. I can watch it. So no, yeah, no, you're right. And what, well, I'll say this though, from what I remember, he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't himself really throw out the mental health stuff as, as like an excuse. It's more like the, the people around him, uh, the kind of, uh, and not in an excuse making way. I wouldn't say they're trying to justify his behavior, but they just, they explain that like, that there's definitely more going on there and more so the fact of like, there's these issues that he is not addressing. And so it's never going to improve sort of scenario. So it's, it's just, it's an interesting dynamic, you know, because there's some issues with his parents and agents. It's pretty wild. There's some crazy stories. No doubt. So you did bring up another thing that you wanted to talk about, and it seems like there's a little bit of craziness in Chicago related to the Bears and the White Sox. One thing I will say is before we started this recording, the White Sox did fire longtime executive Kenny Williams, and they got rid of their GM. So it seems as if they're trying to clean house because they had a really exciting young team, not what, two seasons ago? And now they're in no place to be winning and they don't seem to have any type of direction. But you also wanted to talk about the Bears and their stadium relocation because that has been kind of a little bit of news over the last couple of years as to what they're going to do. Chicago is an interesting city to me when it comes to sports topics. No, it absolutely is. And uh, on the, you know, so obviously on the side of the White Sox, yeah, definitely crazy. You know, there's talks about them wanting to possibly move and not, I, I've heard discussions of maybe move out to the suburbs somewhere, which is what the Bears are talking about, or possibly a move to another city like Nashville or somewhere like that. Like, I just can't imagine a world, and maybe this is how, and I'm not a White Sox fan, I'm a Cubs fan, but, you know, I live here, I just live a couple hours from Chicago. I've been to White Sox games plenty of White Sox fans. I can't imagine a world where the White Sox aren't on the south side of Chicago. It's just such a, it's like ingrained in their DNA. And again, maybe this is how Oakland A's fans feel. You know, I kind of, you know, poked fun at them, uh, maybe considered them unworthy of keeping a team because of their lack of attendance and stuff like that. And maybe that's some of that's what's plaguing the White Sox. But I feel like they have a very loyal fan base. I, I don't know if, I don't know. I, I have to dig more into it. I, I know some of this stuff is just surface level, and obviously there's some other things going on there. They haven't been very good on the field, and I didn't understand why they brought Tony LaRusa in, which, speaking of him, I just saw a picture today of him that was taken recently. It looks like a freaking crypt keeper. I mean, it's unreal. And, I, hey, he had a great career as a great manager, but the fact that they dusted his ass off for a couple of years was just mind-boggling to me. Uh, you just think of some of the managers that they've run through there, you know, before uh, Ozzy Guillen was a crazy, like crazy, like coked out of his mind most of the time. And then, you know, you have old Tony La Russa and whoever else in between. It, it's just been fascinating. I think it's more exciting. I mean, based in and, and Chicago, like for me in central Illinois, it's all about Cubs Cardinals. 
like almost everyone's it's a Cubs fan or Cardinals fan, but in the city of Chicago, folks that live there, they care more about Cubs Sox than they do Cubs Cardinals. I mean, it's definitely the crosstown the rivalry and north side, south side. And there's just a specific like if I saw someone that was from Chicago, just like and I was around them for 30 seconds and you had to say, tell me if they're a Sox fan or a Cubs fan. I, I bet you that like 80 with 80 percent accuracy, I could I could tell you just based off their demeanor. Got a volatile question for you off of this. Are we coming to a place in sports, maybe specifically in baseball, but I think it applies across the board. Are we maybe getting to a place where these cities with two professional teams in the same league are going to become fewer and far between? I think New York gets probably to keep them because New York fans are very, very loyal and I don't see those franchises losing money. But for the White Sox, who have been around for over 100 years and to have the kind of history that they have to consider leaving, is this the first domino in what could be a changing paradigm, maybe in just baseball, but maybe sports specifically? That's certainly possible. Um, cause, and, and you guys, they are the second team, right? The Cubs are the darlings of Chicago. And yes, the, I think it's something that White Sox fans have struggled with forever, you know, sort of being the second team. And I'm sure that the Jets feel the same way. The Mets probably feel the same way. Uh, and the Chargers certainly feel that way in Los Angeles, I would imagine, with the Rams. Yeah, maybe so. But, I mean, you got to think, there's a brand new stadium. It's a, it's one single stadium that they're sharing in Los Angeles. You know, there's a lot that would have to happen for the Chargers to be able to move out of there and build a new stadium elsewhere. Um, obviously, the Sox already have a stadium now. It's an aging ballpark. It's one of what I call, like, the new, newer old ballparks, right? It was, I, I think they built that sometime, what, in the late 80s, maybe? And it's been renovated a time or two. And uh, and they've literally played baseball like at that spot for like 100 years. It's not like, I mean, it's literally that they just tore the old park down and built the other one damn near right on top of it. And then, you know, the Mets, have, you know, they just built a new stadium not too long ago. And I think I think the Mets could survive. New York, I think, is fine. I think they could they can handle it. But you're right. You know, Chicago's in an interesting situation. And. Um, and especially when you have growing markets like Nashville out there, ready, ripe and ready, man, for a major league team or Charlotte or some of those other places I think we've talked about before. It'll be interesting to see. And then, you know, we mentioned uh, the Bears. There's a lot of talk going on about the Bears moving. They bought some land at the old Arlington racetrack out in the West suburbs. And I think they have visions of turning it into sort of, and you're seeing this more and more, especially with baseball stadiums like they did it in Atlanta with Truist Park where it's like a whole complex right with shopping and bars and hotels it's just like a it's almost an amusement park around the stadium and obviously just a total money maker as a whole and so there's talk about them building a new stadium out there the city wants to renovate and put a roof on Soldier Field as it exists uh, just in an act of desperation I think to keep the team downtown but there's hardly no, the parking there's terrible. It's, I mean, it's all the way down on the lake, so it's not super easy to get in and out of. The stadium itself, I mean, the, it's kind of landlocked as far as its footprint. I just don't know there's a lot of flexibility to do much with it to make it what they would want it to be. And then you have the added aspect of whatever happens, it's going to have to be taxpayer funded. And it's just there seems to be a huge push. And maybe I'm just more aware of it now than I've ever been. But it seems like tax taxpayers are less and less willing 
for their tax dollars to go towards building stadiums for these billionaire owners and their franchises. That last part is the real important part here because we've seen a ton of publicly funded stadiums and a vast majority don't get the results that come with it. And it's why Oakland leaving for Las Vegas and they want to have that be publicly funded by the people of Las Vegas. Here's the thing, though. When you have a publicly funded stadium, that stuff comes out of our pocket in other ways, too. In order to make up for it, it comes out in other places where we get taxed in other places and it funnels through. Taxes are just part of the gig in this country. Like, we have to pay taxes. But I don't think people realize just how much crooked accounting takes place in order for, like, taxes to go somewhere. Like, they built casinos in Maryland over here, and it's supposed to go to the general fund. Well, what the hell is that? Like, where does that money go? I feel like it lines pockets of politicians or something like that. So in this case, I think what's going to happen, and to go back to my point earlier about these these cities with two franchises, I think Chicago is teetering on not having it because, and take no offense to this Chicago, but I don't think Chicago is a New York or an LA in terms of the notoriety and ability to make money that those two cities have. And I think that's why they moved two franchises to LA. I don't think you're ever going to see the Jets or Giants or Mets or Yankees leave. Certainly not the Yankees, but I think you get my point is I think New York and LA are just mainstays in terms of even international notoriety. And as much as I love Chicago, I don't think that it's that. And I think if the White Sox want to leave for Nashville, which right now is the up and coming city, man, that shit's going to happen. Because Nashville is trying to build a publicly funded stadium for the Titans just so that they can host a Super Bowl. So that's all that this is about. And if Soldier Field is not going to be the solution and they build out in the suburbs, they're going to do so with exactly what you said in mind. Money and Super Bowls and notoriety. And if they build a dome stadium in Chicago, they're going to get a Super Bowl. They're going to. And that's going to make the city richer. It's going to make the franchise richer. And the only people it's not going to make richer are the fans. No, absolutely. And I don't know if there's certain parts of the country it's harder to push this shit through that, you know, if maybe Chicago, like like Bears fans, I would associate Bears fans as being like very blue collar uh, type people, you know, same with like Cleveland, um, even like the people of uh, probably a lot of Oakland A's fans, right? I know that's in uh, tech country and stuff, but I mean, I would say that maybe people that are actually Oakland A's fans uh, kind of, you know, your your blue collar average Joe, you know, that uh, doesn't want their money to go to something like that. Uh, I, I could see there being more willingness in some of, you know, the L.A.'s and New York's of the world. And um, it'll be at, at the end of the day, though, man, it seems that more often than not, these these franchises, these leagues usually get their way, you know. So because what do you do? Right. What do you do as a as a taxpayer? You could say, well, you need to vote in different local officials, <laughs> but it's only a matter of time before whoever you vote in and places someone else is getting their pockets lined to play the game. I don't know, man. I, I'd rather just, I guess, be along for the ride. Just, we'll just wander through life uh, blissfully ignorant to how, how bad we're getting jobbed <laughs> on some of this stuff and enjoy these beautiful uh, cathedrals that we call sports stadiums that are popping up all around the country. If you want to know that what you're saying is true, Stan Kroenke, owner of the L.A. Rams, is still paying millions of dollars to the city of St. Louis for screwing them over however many years ago. So these franchises are going to get their way no matter what. 
But as you said, put the blinders on and let's just get to watching some sports. Iceman's stat of the week, continuing the weekly tradition of Coach and I getting a little personal, and we always start with a stat of the week. I'm not even going to bother to ask you if you're ready because I can just tell looking over there that you are. It's going to be a baseball stat, my man, so I hope you're okay with that. This is an interesting one, and it's not even really a stat. I did confirm this, though, so this is not just some meme that had me on the internet, but this is per baseballer on Twitter. There have been two players in Major League Baseball history with the last name of Moyer. One of them we have talked about, and that is Jamie Moyer. I gave a stat of the week way, way, way back when we started doing stats of the week, and a guy named Ed Moyer. This is the fascinating part. Ed Moyer died on November 18th, 1962. Jamie Moyer was born November 16th, 1962. Excuse me, November 18th, 1962. They are not related to each other. <laughs> that's like the most that's like a pretty obscure stat like where did you Twitter yeah that, I mean that's just crazy so you just stumbled across on Twitter you're like that's it man yeah. this is this is the stat of the week that's fascinating well it was like that's so weird because we've talked about Jamie Moyer before because like Jamie Moyer pitched into his 50s and he was I, I, I had a name like I compared him to somebody else in sports like Yarmir Yager still wants to come back and play in the NHL he's almost 60 years old that guy pitched 75 mile an hour fastballs into his 50s. Like, there's just guys that hang around forever in all of these sports. Gordy Howe. Exactly. Gordy Howe, I saw, played like a series and he was like 68 years old. And I think he had a point. Like, it's just insane. But I saw it and I was like, what are the chances that this is correct? Because, you know, a lot of times on the internet, they got memes and stuff, and you're like, I got to fact check this. I fact-checked it and it was right. And I was like, I'm going to go with it because it's so ridiculous and it's so random. And it's like, actually, I figured it out. Jamie Moyer was like the Stetson Bennett because there's always weird stats because he played for so long. Like, I think they said that he was teammates with some guy, but like, th- like he was teammates with two people that span, I think it was Nolan Ryan who started playing in like the late 60s and DJ LeMahieu who's still playing today. So like he was teammates with guys that span like 50 something years because he played for so long. And what do you know? He was born, he was born the same day that the guy with his last name, the only guy in Major League history died on the same day like that's just insane and i thought it was fun no that is fun man and, and unlike you i like to take everything i see on the internet as truth in fact uh, <laughs> so especially if it's people. in especially if it's in meme form <laughs> always truth with bad grammar to boot Rejoice, my friends. The streak is over. Coach, it was a couple of weeks ago, but your boy, Motor City Dan Campbell, in a completely meaningless preseason game, pulled out the stops and scored with less than two minutes left to break the streak. You are now 3-12-0 on the season. Your win streak is now one game. So, We are starting over, man. This is the climb to the top. It's always much more satisfying than being on top wire to wire. So let's get this ball rolling 
with football right around the corner and bless us with another winning pick of the week. Uh, hear ye, hear ye. It feels good to uh, come in here on the heels of a win. And you you sort of alluded to it, right, in your little lead up to this. You're saying that meaningless preseason football game. And what did I tell you? I said, there are no uh, meaningless games for Dan Campbell. If there's a guy that's going to come out and try to win anything where there's a winner and a loser, even if it is two of the preseason, it's Dan Campbell. And uh, the Lions got it done as I knew they would. Never had a doubt. Never had a doubt in my mind. So let's see if we can make it two in a row. Maybe we can run it all the way out to 12 and 12, right? That would be wonderful. Guys, I'm like sensing like some Donald Trump vibes from like my cadence here a little bit. It's weirding me out, <laughs> but Huge. we're going to do it. It's going to be great. It's going to be tremendous. We're going to do it better than anybody's ever done. So anyways, <laughs> we've got week zero of college football action coming up this week. And there's, a, there's not a lot of games on Saturday, but there is football and that's all that matters. And so this Saturday evening, uh, August 26th at 6 p.m. Central Time at 7 if you're on the East Coast. 4 if you are on the West Coast where this game is taking place. The uh, Minutemen of the University of Massachusetts are traveling across the country to take on New Mexico State. And these are two teams that have struggled a lot. Uh, New Mexico State is kind of just a dumpster fire. Um, kind of across their athletic programs. And... So it'll be interesting. Uh, I don't know if this is like a game for like Mr. Irrelevant, but this game opened up uh, with New Mexico State being a nine and a half point favorite, but the public has come in since then heavy on UMass and the line has now moved to six and a half. So New Mexico State currently six and a half point favorite. I'm with the public on this. I, I think that New Mexico State's just so shitty. <laughs> Um, I was a little concerned about UMass traveling across the country. Uh, they, they probably don't do a whole lot of traveling like that. Typically, I wouldn't imagine. And uh, that's a long jaunt across three time zones or whatever to play um, in New Mexico. So I'm going to take uh, UMass. I'm going to take UMass plus six and a half. So to keep the keep the margin at six or less um, on Saturday against New Mexico State. So Iceman, give me the Minutemen. The UMass Minutemen over the New Mexico State, whatever they are, because according to you, they are so, so bad. I think it's Aggies. This would get you, there you go, this would get you to four wins and a winning streak of two. I believe in Major League, he said, we won one, we won a second one, that's called a winning streak. So coach, so let it be written, so let it be done. All right, everybody, we have reached the end of the show. And before we get to the closing remarks, Coach and I want to share with you some big news. So this Friday, as Coach said, is week zero or starting of week zero of the college football season. And that means that we have the college football show that we are putting on college kickoff eve every single Friday during the college football season, 9 p.m. Eastern, the show before the show. And what is a wrinkle? We will be live. We don't do that too, too often, but we are doing it here. And this Friday will be our first ever episode of it. I can't wait for it. It's going to be very exciting. And so, Coach, I hope that you are looking forward to it as well. But if you're watching or listening to this, YouTube, 9 p.m. Eastern, every Friday, check us out for College Football Eve. You will not want to miss this. 
Oh, it's going to be great. Going to be wonderful. Going to be great. We're going to do it better than anybody's ever done it. Um, yeah, football's coming up on Saturday. Really excited about that, man. Like, super excited. We didn't talk at all, which is fine. Uh, Notre Dame, Notre Dame Navy Saturday. Probably the only game that's even half as interesting, um, at least from a national perspective. They're playing in Dublin, Ireland, which is really cool. They, Notre Dame's got kind of a special uniform they're wearing. It's got some, like, the Irish braid on the shoulders, and Navy's sort of wearing a matching uniform with the Irish braid on it which is neat. Um, there's a lot of history behind that game that goes back a long ways. Maybe we can talk about some of that Friday, but I'm excited to see Notre Dame and uh, just, you know, second year under Marcus Freeman, first year coordinator on the offensive side of the ball, Sam Hartman in from Wake Forest, a lot of, uh, a lot of exciting pieces on both sides of the ball. So I, I don't know that the game itself is going to tell us a lot about who Notre Dame really, really is, but at least give us an insight to, to what lies ahead. So looking forward to that, really looking forward to the Friday night college football eve um it's going to be exciting so pumped about it tune in check it out comment uh you'll be able to interact with us live if you choose to to watch it and it's kind of fun for me man because it's been a long time when i was coaching high school football like this week was always just the most it was kind of just a bundle of nerves excited all those things like building up because this coming friday is the first week of high school football season here in illinois so it's been a bit since I've kind of had this buildup and anticipation towards this, I guess, opening weekend this time of year. And it's opening weekend for high school football, which I don't follow too closely anymore, but opening weekend for college football, the opening uh, weekend for us in the live show Friday night. So looking forward to it. It's fun for me to kind of have that that feeling of that buildup, the anticipation, excitement, a little bit of nerves, you know, just about everything that's happening. So I'm pumped, man. It, it makes you feel alive, you know, and I like that a lot. Yeah, I'm definitely pumped. I want to say to everybody that we don't do lives very often, but we're hoping to give you the same quality, the same production as we do in these shows every single week. We just want to do it with a more interactive flair to it. And college football is something that we both love and enjoy a lot. And this is going to be a tester. So if this is something that goes well, we could be extending this to some NFL action. And who knows? The future could be bright in this, but I'm looking forward to it. And I hope that everybody tunes in on Friday and every Friday until the conference championship games in December, right before Christmas. But a little bit before we get you out of here, do not forget, call or text INC Sports if you want to give us an opinion or tell us we're full of crap. Area code 703-718-6314 is the number to do that. If you want to interact with us on TikTok, at INC Sports is the place to do so. We like to post some clips that generally get some positive vibes, so I'm pretty happy about that. And of course, if you want to find us on Facebook, INC Sports is the page to do that. We don't have a big following there, but I do like to interact a little bit on there. So find us all over there. Apple or Spotify, if you're listening in the podcasting world, follow, rate, all that good stuff. If you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe isn't mandatory, but it is extremely helpful. We're part of the Matty S Media Network. I hope that this finds you well. I hope that this finds you safe. And once again, I want to remind you, pick up the phone, Call or text that person. Rekindle the cracks in those relationships. You will thank me for it. This is Iceman and Coach. The opinions and viewpoints expressed on INC Sports are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. INC Sports is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.